So this week, we're starting a new book. And we're going to move right on from 2 Peter right into 1 John. John, of course, known. John the Beloved. He was a very special friend to Jesus. Now, God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son, so we know that he loves every one of us. His love extends to each and every human being as exhibited by the death of Christ on the cross. But in his earthly life here on earth, in his earthly ministry, he did have certain individuals that he was closer to than others, just like all of us. We love everybody here. We, we really, I don't know about you guys, I really enjoy seeing you all each week. Don't always get to say hi to everybody, but it's really a blessing to come together as the body of Christ, isn't it? Yeah. To see one another, enjoy each other's company and fellowship. But we all have certain people in our lives that we're closer to than others. David had Jonathan. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what that proverb means is that um, someone who has a lot of shallow relationships, that in the long run, that may not prove to be beneficial. But having a few close friends and that friend who sticks closer than a brother, that person that uh, you know will always be there for you, uh, that requires some effort to cultivate that kind of a relationship. But that, that was a relationship that Jesus had with John. Peter, James, and John were the three that were closest to Jesus. Oftentimes, he, would, he, br he brought those three with him when he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. John was the only disciple or apostle who was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. The others had all ran away and hidden. John was there, as was Jesus' mother Mary, and as you may recall, Jesus entrusted the care and keeping of his mother to the Apostle John. That, that's another indicator of how close they were, the relationship, the love relationship they had with one another in the proper sense of the word. You know, there are those who have tried to make something else out of it, especially in this day and age. But it was very much like a David and Jonathan relationship. So this is the John who wrote this epistle. He wrote the Gospel of John, which we have three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning, it comes from the word synopsis. And it means that basically Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the same basic storyline with a few variations, but very much the same often when you're cross-referencing passages, scriptures in the Gospels. You'll find a lot of, of cross-references between those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel is a whole other situation. And another thing about John that has been noted through the years is that his writings take on more of a mystical sense you might even say deeper, the themes that we find in the Gospel of John and in the three epistles of John. And he's also known because Jesus gave him the revelation that we have in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. 
He's also known as John the Revelator. And you could certainly say that the book of Revelation has its mystical qualities to it. So, quite an amazing figure. Um, the strongest traditions concerning John tell us that in his later years, his latter years, he was in Ephesus. And you probably know the story, you've heard me tell it before, that they, would, they claimed that uh, when he was quite elderly and actually not even able to walk anymore, uh, the elders of the church would carry him to the front and ask him to bring them some word from the Lord. And he would say the same thing every time, little children love one another. And they would say, John, that's, you, you say that every time. He says, well, when you start doing that, I'll tell you something else. That's a, that's a non-biblical but traditional story concerning John. So John the Beloved, you, he's also known as the Apostle of Love because it's a very big, very strong theme in his writings. Um, but now unlike 2nd and 3rd John, which we will cover after we get through 1st John, so a few weeks, months, years, <laughs> there are no personal references in this first epistle You'll find in 2nd and 3rd John that he uses uh, phrases like to the chosen lady, to his dear friend Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius. He mentions certain individuals by name. There's none of that in this first epistle. And so um, the lack of personal references in this letter would indicate that it was written in uh, what we call a sermonic style, like a sermon to Christians all over Asia Minor. Much like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it was probably written after the Gospel of John, we believe between 85 and 90 A.D., before the persecution under Roman Emperor Domitian, which began in 95 A.D. So again, it places the writing somewhere in the late 80s or early 90s, so we're talking, you know, roughly 60 years after Christ ascended into heaven. So quite a bit of uh, church history has already taken place. John being the last surviving apostle, as you probably know, all the others were martyred. And again, a non-biblical tradition is that uh, they attempted to boil John in oil, but he would not boil. And so he survived. He was the only apostle who died at a late age of a natural death. Now, one of the issues that John's dealing with um, in his writings here, in his epistles, particularly this first epistle, is the issue of the heresy of Gnosticism. It had begun to make inroads in many of the churches in John's day. So even less than a century after the establishing of the New Testament church, heresy had already crept in. And some of the teachings of Gnosticism were as follows. One... The Gnostics taught that knowledge is superior to virtue. They also taught that the non-literal sense of Scripture is correct. Non-literal. Whereas we believe, and Pastor Chuck always taught us in Calvary Chapel, that the plain thing is the main thing. See, God did not give us His Holy Word, His Holy Scriptures, in such a way that we could not understand them. That had been a mentality. In fact, you see elements of that in the early church, particularly 
I don't mean to be derogatory, but in the Catholic Church where for centuries they wouldn't allow the people to have a Bible in their own language, right? It was all in Latin. And so unless you could read, write, speak Latin, you didn't even know what they were saying. And you could not, they did not have their own Bibles to read. They only heard what the priests would give them. That's a carryover from Gnosticism. I hate to say that. Of course, we know the modern church now does have Bibles. The modern Catholic church has Bibles in English and whatever language of the country that that church is located in. But early on, in fact, up until the, the middle part of the 20th century, that was the case. That's a carryover from Gnosticism. The idea that um, the non-literal sense of Scripture is correct and can be understood only by a few. And that's also a, a major trademark of every cult group is that they, are, they tend to be very secretive and they give you the impression that unless you join their group and really come into the inner sanctum, so to speak, then you can't really know the true, deep, spiritual things of God. That's Gnosticism. In giving us the New Testament, we're told that that which was hidden has now been made known. God's desire is not to hide things from his people, but to make them known to us. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In former times God spoke to his people through the prophets, in these latter times, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. In such a way that we can all understand. So knowledge is superior to virtue. Uh, the non-literal sense of scripture is the correct. and other, other, Everything's hidden and mystical and can only be understood by a few. The third thing is that evil in the world precludes God being the only creator. And so they actually... Gnosticism taught that God is not, and still does, by the way, because there is still Gnosticism in the world, that God is not the only creator. There are others. Fourthly, that the incarnation, in other words, the incarnation is the birth of Christ, where God came to earth, became a man, born of the Virgin Mary. That's the incarnation. Well, they teach, the Gnostics teach, that incarnation is incredible, not incredible in a good way, but unbelievable. They teach that the incarnation is unbelievable because deity cannot unite itself with anything material such as a body. Hence, they taught that Jesus was only a phantom or a spirit, that he did not really have a physical body, which pretty much ruins everything because it was his physical body that was nailed to the cross. It was his physical body that rose from the dead, and it's his resurrection that gives us the promise of a physical resurrection as well. So you see, there's a lot of problems with Gnosticism. And you can also see how many of those teachings have been woven in to the New Age movement. Can you not see that? Do you know why? Just because, just as our God wrote the Bible, there's a false God who writes the doctrine for all these cult groups. You know who that is, don't you? The prince of this world, Satan. And so when you really begin to evaluate various cult groups, whether it be Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the other cults, you will actually find a continuing thread that runs through all of them. Because all of those false doctrines, Paul refers to them as doctrines of demons. They all have their own little nuances, and they all try to pass themselves off as the true way. 
but they actually all have the same roots. They have the same author. And this, this fourth one that I just mentioned, that the incarnation is incredible or unbelievable because deity cannot unite itself with anything material such as a body. That's called docetism. So we have Gnosticism and then within Gnosticism there are certain sub-branches like docetism. And then the fifth one, which makes sense in light of what we just talked about, the fifth teaching of Gnosticism is that there is no resurrection of the flesh. That pretty much destroys. Hey, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then we're to be pitied above all people. Now, before we get into the first two verses, John, in this letter, because the ethical standards of many Gnostics were low, you can imagine, because they said knowledge is superior to virtue, so what you know is more, more important than how you behave, your values, your morals, your ethics. They exalted knowledge, and by the way, that's exactly what large parts of the world have done today, exalted knowledge to the point that knowledge is worshipped above God. It's become like a God. John emphasizes in this first epistle the reality of the incarnation and the high ethical standard of Jesus in his life as a man here on earth. So a major theme in this letter is John's tremendous affection for his little children and concern for their spiritual welfare. The book of 1 John is full of contrasts. We have light and darkness, a love of the world versus love of God, children of God and children of the devil, the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist, and then love versus hate. Some really important major themes in this book. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we begin to launch out into this new study in the book of 1 John that you would speak to our hearts and minds. Give us insight, even as we've already discussed this morning, Father, your, your desire is to make these things known to us, not to hide them. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because uh, the master does not give the information to his servants that he gives to his friends. And you've given us information concerning you, your kingdom, the, the deep spiritual things and truths that are revealed to us in your word. We thank you for them, and we ask you to bless this study in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I love it because... 1 John 1, 1 starts out almost exactly like the Gospel of John, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and there's a difference between the two, we'll talk about it in a moment, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, with a big W, who is the word of life? Jesus but I love it. That which was from the beginning. And the verb here in the Greek means was already in existence. Not came into existence. As in creation, the beginning. In other words, it wasn't the beginning for God because he has always existed. He is eternal. So we see in Genesis 1.1. I love this connection between Genesis 1.1, John 1.1, and 1 John 1.1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, he was already there, created the heavens and the earth. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. There it is again with a big W. Jesus is the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So John gives us a lot of information there in the first three verses of his gospel. That Jesus was there in the beginning of creation with God the Father. And he was not only with him, all things were made through him. Without him was nothing made that was made. So he is the co-creator, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Confirming the deity of Christ. So in this opening verse to notice, John says, we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, and we've handled. John introduces himself here in this first epistle as an eyewitness of the incarnation, the very thing that the Gnostics had denied. The incarnation, the degradation, as we talked about during communion, Christ's degradation, and then his exaltation as he rose from the dead. John was an eyewitness to all of this. First of all, he says, which we have heard. We know John was one of the twelve. We talked about the fact that he was also one of the three, Peter, James, and John, part of the inner circle of Christ's followers. And as such, he heard the Master's voice day in and day out for some three years. So you and I have been blessed by this supernatural thing called being born again as we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, the Bible says we're born again. We talked about this last week, a new creation. And so we're blessed to be able to hear the voice of God, not audibly, but in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirit, right? And particularly, the most reliable way that we hear from God is not Dion's Pizza at midnight. It's from the Word of God. As we read the Word and we ask God, speak to my heart, Father. Cause your Holy Spirit to cause your Word to come alive in my heart, in my mind. We hear from Him. He does speak through situations, circumstances, other people, but the most reliable way is through His Word because His Word is absolutely reliable, trustworthy from beginning to end. But John was blessed in a very special way as one of the twelve, one of the three, that he literally heard the voice of Christ. So it wasn't second or third hand information. He was there. And that which we have heard is recorded for us in John's gospel and has come to us as the first hand account of someone who was right there at ground zero, if you will. In fact, in John 21, 25, he writes, Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Isn't that amazing? When we think about what's involved in our systematic study of the Word of God and how, at least here, and I know other pastors, particularly other Calvary Chapel pastors, I'm always encouraged when I find out that it took them a couple of years to get through one book. And I do hear that on a regular basis. But can you imagine, in light of what we read here in John 21, 25, we're just scratching the surface. 
But we will have all of eternity to get to know him a lot better. Then he goes on, which we have seen with our eyes. The Greek word is horao, and it means to see with the eyes. And yes, John literally did see Jesus with his own eyes, again, spending some three years with him, and then seeing him after his resurrection. And then seeing him, if you look at the first chapter of the book of Revelation, John sees a whole different Jesus with the eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze, flowing white hair and so forth. It's an amazing picture of John's vision of, of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation. To see with the eyes, to see with the mind, to perceive, to know, to see, become acquainted with by experience, to experience. So John, yes, he experienced the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, he lived with him almost night and day for three years. So here's John's eyewitness testimony. We've heard, we've seen with our eyes. John, the other apostles, and hundreds of others. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about how more than 500 people saw Jesus post-resurrection at one time. You think that would stand up in a court? You don't need 500, do you? Two or three witnesses, but 500 at one time. They witnessed the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we can be encouraged. People may try to mock. They may try to question, sow seeds of doubt. But the story of our Savior is not one of hearsay, gossip, or rumor. It's an historical fact. In fact, let me read from 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. Of course, why did Jesus appear to Peter first? Because Peter was extremely downhearted, as you and I would be had we denied him, right? Remember? Jesus told Peter, sorry, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter said, I'm no chicken. But he did deny the Lord three times before the rooster crowed, and he was despondent. He was ready to hang it up. He was ready to give up being an apostle and going back to being a fisherman. So Jesus very lovingly, graciously appeared to him first, then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. So some 30 years later, at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the vast majority of those 500 were still alive. But some have fallen asleep. And don't we all love the way the Bible refers to a believer who has passed from this life? They fell asleep. I love that. Because believers don't die. We fall asleep and we wake up in the arms of Jesus. You got to love that. So, some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, his brother, the one who wrote the book of James, half-brother, excuse me, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul, on the road to Damascus, remember? As by one born out of due time. So Paul was the only one who wasn't there during the earthly ministry of Christ, but because Jesus had specifically chosen him to be apostle, they had a special meeting on the road to Damascus. But Paul gives us a very detailed account of all the eyewitnesses 
John's identifying himself here in this first chapter of 1 John as an eyewitness. Paul gives us a detailed description of all the eyewitnesses who saw Christ after his resurrection. But now it gets interesting because first he says, we have seen with our eyes, and then he says, which we have looked upon. It's a different Greek word. Theaomai. We had horao, to see with the eyes. Now we have theaomai, which is to behold, look upon, view, attentively, contemplate. It indicates thorough scrutiny and observation. So not only did John and the other apostles see Jesus, they thoroughly evaluated and scrutinized him. So it wasn't this, you know, blind worship like we see, again, with many cult leaders where people just follow after them because they're charismatic or physically attractive and so forth. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't physically attractive. There was nothing about him in the natural that would draw men and women to him. It was the Holy Spirit in him. It was the dynamic of God in human form. Do you remember that the people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus? They said it wasn't like the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the scriptures inside and out. They said, but this is different because he teaches as one with authority. Well, I would say, yeah, because he's God and he wrote the book. There's a lot of authority there. So they did see him physically. They witnessed his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. But they also didn't just blindly follow him. They scrutinized him. They thoroughly evaluated and scrutinized him, determining him to be all that he claimed to be and proved himself to be. That's what John is telling us. You can see someone, and you can make observations about them, but people are not always what they appear to be at first glance. Isn't that true? Sometimes, unfortunately, we judge people that really are, are tremendous people, but maybe they aren't very charismatic. Maybe they aren't very dynamic. Maybe they are shy. Maybe they are introverted. Maybe they just don't make a good first impression. And yet if you go ahead and take the time to get to know them, you find out, wow, this is, they're amazing. This is, I really like them. I want to be friends with them. And then there are others that you just feel an immediate magnetism. But once you get to really know them, you realize, well, they're not all they're cracked up to be. So they did not only saw him, they were not only eyewitnesses of his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, but they carefully evaluated him before they made a decision to become followers of Christ. And then he says, our hands have handled. Now the Greek word here is salafao, and it's, it's used in the, the Gospel of Luke as well regarding one of Christ's post resurrection appearances it means to handle to touch to feel and again this is important because john is refuting the heresy of gnosticism that the incarnation is incredible or unbelievable because all flesh is evil therefore deity cannot inhabit flesh john's refuting this he is confirming the incarnation Emmanuel, God with us, God in human form. 
And so it's important that he emphasizes that they, they actually handled him, they touched him, they were together. When you hang out with people, you shake hands, you hug, you have, you have physical contact. They had meals together. And particularly, it was significant in that they had contact with him after his resurrection. Do you remember the story of Doubting Thomas, of course? But first, Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, Look at my hands and my feet. And by the way, apparently, from what we read in the Scriptures, God has chosen to leave the marks, would be the wrist, actually. God has chosen to leave those marks in place. The nail prints in his wrists and his feet, the wound in his side, for all eternity. Just like we take communion now as a reminder, we're going to have a reminder for all eternity of what he did for us. And so he tells them, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's me. Touch me, he says. And see, a ghost, which is what the Gnostics would have claimed that Jesus was, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. What's missing there? Blood. Flesh and bones. So in our post-resurrected bodies, now, the Bible says life is in the blood. But we also, in these mortal bodies, in these sin-cursed bodies, blood also carries what? Disease, right? So there's, we don't know for sure, but it seems like it's possible that we won't have blood anymore, at least like, like we do now. Who knows? Interesting. Flesh and bones. John 20, 27. This is where Thomas, Thomas missed out on the first appearance on the night of the resurrection Sunday. He wasn't there. The others were hiding together in one place. Jesus appeared to them, but no Thomas. So after the fact, they said, Thomas, hey man, you really missed out. We saw Jesus. He says, you guys are nuts. He's dead. He's buried. I will not believe it unless I can touch him, see the wounds in his hands and his side. So Jesus makes another appearance a week later, same time, same place. And Thomas is there this time. And even though he sees Jesus, he's still skeptical. So he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And in a moment, in an instant, in a heartbeat, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And that's the transforming power of a personal revelation concerning Jesus Christ. Now Thomas, again, had the benefit of actually being there and seeing, but Jesus goes on to tell him, blessed are you because you've seen and you've believed. But even more blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. And that's us. We probably look back on envy at these guys, don't we? Wow, to have been there right? To have walked with Jesus, to hung out with, hung out with Jesus, you know, had some grilled fish over a fire on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. That well, would have been pretty cool. But how blessed are we that even though we weren't there, we didn't see it with our physical eyes, but God has made himself known to us by his spirit. That is a miracle. I think we forget, unfortunately, many times that we are walking miracles to believe, to be given that gift, to have God reveal himself to us when so many out there have not seen him. But John just wants us to know 
In case you're questioning, doubting the veracity, the validity of our story, of our gospel, we were there, we saw him, we scrutinized him, we touched him. And so he says then, concerning the word of life, in one translation it says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is John's official you could say this is his official legal statement, if you will, his testimony concerning the man Jesus Christ of Nazareth who is, in fact, the word of life. And I have a whole list of scriptures to read. It's kind of lengthy, but they're all taken from the Gospel of John and they all reinforce what we've been talking about here this morning. Again, we read John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's the word of life. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. One thing you'll notice as we read through these verses, it doesn't refer to Jesus as a way of life or the way to life. He is the life. He is the very source of life. And even though someone is born into this world biologically, physically, until we're born again by the Spirit of God, we do not possess eternal life. Only in Christ, who is the life, may we have eternal life. John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Oh, wow, that might concern some people. Well, what if He doesn't want to give it to me? What if He doesn't like me? Well, that's already been settled. John 3.16, God so loved the world. He does like you. He loves you. He doesn't like your sin. That's why he died on the cross, to get rid of it. The Son gives life to whom he will. To whom will he give life? To all those who call upon his name. John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Again, both the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are the source of life. They're not just a way of life or a way to the life. They are the very source of true life. Verse 39 of John 5. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so, again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day... Just like we said this morning, the communion doesn't save you. We take communion because we have been saved by God through Jesus Christ. The scriptures don't save you. They reveal to you the one who can and will save you. John 6.33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 68, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That was a divine revelation God gave to Peter in that moment. Jesus was talking to the disciples. He says, Hey guys, what's the word on the street? Who do men say that I am? Well, some think you're the prophet Jeremiah. Come back. Others say Elijah and so forth. Jesus says, Well, who do you say that I am? Peter. You got to love Peter. Now he could be brash and rash and he would stick that big fisherman's foot in his mouth more often than not, right? But he also had some very keen spiritual insights. 
And he said, you are the, and he's speaking on behalf of the group. But this is Peter talking. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, man has not revealed that to you, but God has revealed that to you. But then there was another issue there in that many people were turning away from Jesus and it got closer and closer to the end leading up to his crucifixion. His teachings became more and more intense. And the Bible says, tells us that many people were turning away from him and no longer following him. And so, being fully God and fully man, he, he, he experienced what it was like to be rejected. In fact, you know when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? We often think of that in terms of suffering, particularly physical suffering. But the cross of Christ is the cross of rejection. So the question is, are you willing to take up that cross and follow Christ? Are you willing to face the rejection of those around you if it comes to that? What if it comes down to your mother, your father, your sister, your brother? Not my father, but my mother, but it's me, oh Lord, right? Standing in the need of prayer. What if it comes down to even those nearest and dearest to you saying, you know what? And this is, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this may have happened to somebody in this room, but I bet you know someone that it has happened to where someone very close to them, possibly a spouse, close friend, relative, says, you know what? You need to choose me or God. Can you imagine somebody actually saying that? But there have been people who have said that. They're jealous of God. I don't want God to be first in your life. I want me to be first in your life. So it's either me or God. I'm going to sit home and pout while you go to church for a couple hours. It sounds silly, but there are people who do that. They would rather drag you off to a bar somewhere and get you drunk than have you go to church and worship God. The cross of Christ is the cross of rejection. Not everybody can handle it. If you're truly born again, you should be able to handle it. But I, through the years, I've seen an awful lot of people drift away because they couldn't handle the rejection. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And you know, that should ring in the ears of every believer who has ever had any thoughts about possibly turning away from God, hanging it up, giving it up. I just don't know if I can do this anymore. I can't, this is too hard, man. I can't handle this following God's stuff. Just remember the words of Peter. Jesus says, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? In his humanity, Jesus had those thoughts, those feelings. Man, everybody is turning away from me. Are you guys going to turn away too? And Peter, once again, man, comes in with that deep spiritual insight. He says, Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. And see, out of all of this creation, out of the entire universe, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And that's why the devil fights so hard to defame him, to besmirch him, to shame his name, to turn people away from him, because there's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. That's it. 
that's not fair. Well, actually it is. In fact, it would be fair if God said, I'm not going to give you any way to get saved because you don't deserve it. Because that happens to be the truth. So when God provided the way, Jesus Christ, I think that's more than fair. And I'm going to take advantage of that offer. How about you guys? John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John 14, 6, which I basically just quoted. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet, we have a growing number within the, under the umbrella of the church that are now saying, they don't necessarily believe that Jesus is the only way. That's mean. That's hateful. That's hurtful. That's bigoted. It might even be racist and homophobic. But we Christians shouldn't be so narrow-minded as to say that Jesus is the only way. Well, you know who said it first? Jesus. If you don't believe what Jesus said, then don't Call yourself a Christian. Go call yourself something else. Because if you don't believe what Jesus said, then why even embrace this faith, this belief? But if you do believe it, then you need to stand for the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Believe it and receive it or don't. But don't mess around with it. Don't go halfway with it. Don't compromise with it. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Either be all in or all out. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said in Revelation chapter 3, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness makes God sick to his stomach. But again, the beauty of this first section of John, 1 John 1, is that John is telling us, hey, listen, you can believe our report. We're eyewitnesses. I was there. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. He's the real deal. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book of 1 John. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for your word where you have made known to us those things that we need to know in order to enter into an everlasting love relationship with you, Father. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to be all in. I can't imagine anyone here today would want to be all out. We don't want to miss out on eternity. We don't want to miss out on the eternal joy and peace in your presence, living forever in paradise with our Heavenly Father who created us. So I pray this morning as we close, Lord, perhaps there might still be someone here that has not yet sealed the deal. They haven't made that commitment to take up their cross and follow you. If there's even one person, I pray that today they would come forward for prayer and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, for others who might need to get back on track, they've been sidetracked. That's okay. You love us. 
Lord, you left the 99 and went to find the one lost sheep and bring them back. Lord, if there are any lost sheep here today, please bring them back into the fold, back into the family. Lord, whatever else is going on, you know every heart, you know everyone here. We pray that no one would leave here today discouraged, disappointed, downhearted, confused. But Lord, that anyone and everyone sensing uh, a need for ministry today, for prayer, would come and allow you and allow these faithful servants to pray for them and minister to them as we close. And we ask you to receive our final offering of worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.